90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm doing pretty good this week. Um, weather's been nice here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying I wore a t-shirt today. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I froze. <laughs> you and half the country. Yeah, though we were pretty lucky here. So State College, where I am, we got maybe eight inches or a little under. Uh, not not quite a foot of snow, but the gradient was so incredibly steep. Altoona, which is maybe 50 miles south of here, had, I think, about 20 inches. Wow. And it just kept going up towards D.C. I mean, it was super tight snowfall gradient. Wow. Man, just sit there under one of those little squalls, I guess, and get dumped on. That's unbelievable. We've had some rains like that with those pretty tight gradients, 14 inches, and a county away, it's like 0.7 inches. It's been an interesting weather weather year. Oh, yeah. So that, I guess, uh, you know, we survived that. We're melted off now. And oh, nice. And nice. we've got a little bit of flooding issues, but nothing too bad. So it's been just another <laughs> standard week at work trying to get things done. And, yeah, uh, what about you? Uh, yeah, well, unfortunately, my field trips that happen have gotten in the way of something I signed up for. I have to cancel it, but I knew you'd be pretty proud of me. Because I signed up for an Arduino class at the local library. <laughs> oh, okay. So w I didn't hear about this at all before we recorded. I'm pretty excited to hear this, actually. <laughs> um, I had to cancel it because I had to change one of my field trip dates to accommodate um, landowners. So that sucks. <laughs> I'm sad I'm missing it. But they're having an Arduino for teens and an Arduino for adults class at our local library so hopefully they offer it again in the next couple of months because i'm kind of bummed i'm gonna miss it yeah i mean there's some really great books and there's even a linda course on it oh i've just delved into lynda.com so um maybe i could maybe i could do that and catch up with what i would have learned at this um i thought it was pretty exciting um they actually had quite a few robotics courses and even a girls who code club that meets like twice a month at the library Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was for like 6th through 12th grade girls, and it looks like it's pretty busy because they had several times available. So um, I thought that was pretty neat. You know, it's interesting. Libraries really are, they're getting 3D printers. They're getting maker spaces. Uh, they're really becoming places for people to gather and do things, maybe more so than together and you know, research and paper books because that's becoming less and less of a thing exactly. uh, with search engines. But they're adapting, which is fantastic. It is fantastic because I think that's, you know, nothing's ever going to replace a real book, especially for people that are super book nerds like I am. Um, right. <laughs> I had a friend, <laughs> he lent me a book and he had to explain to me that this is not the kind of book that, you know, I was allowed to eat when I'm reading or, you know, let anyone else touch. And I said, <laughs> I totally understand. Um, my mother won't borrow books from me because she says I get angry when her eye tracks are on them, and it's totally true. <laughs> um, but I digress. Well, um, it's really nice that libraries yeah. are sticking with um, sticking with the times. But I figured that you would be proud of me for my uh, my initiative, at least. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's great. I'm excited to hear that. But well, I guess before we get into the uh, the show, which is related to the weather that we've been having. Uh, we should do 
uh, feedback. Again, yay. Yeah, so we have two pieces of feedback this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is this neat link uh, listener Mark sent in. And last week we talked about Big G, and I didn't say much about it on purpose because the show was already long. Uh, <laughs> and we could talk about Big G for a little while. Uh, but both pieces of feedback are on that. The, the link that Mark sent is called Bending Space Time in the Basement. Yeah, <laughs> and it's this uh, really nicely done experiment with a uh, a torsion balance, basically, where you have these two very dense metal balls, and then a uh, a swing arm, a torsion arm, mm-hmm. with weights on it as well, and you can actually see the effect of gravitational attraction between the weights. If you go to the website, it's a lot clearer than trying to describe it. Uh, yes, uh, and it's super well written and actually pretty funny too. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a pretty nice little experiment. And I remember uh, this leads to the, the second piece of feedback that uh, was from listener Bart. He said, you know, how well we can measure Big G is slightly embarrassing. Because <laughs> <laughs> yes. it's been known for a long time, and we really haven't improved the precision all that much. Uh, so, I mean, the seventeen late 1700s, uh, there was basically this big wooden torsion balance. It was the Cavendish experiment. If you right. Google that, you'll find all kinds of reproductions of it uh, to measure big G. And we've only got a few orders of magnitude better. Uh, yeah, in 300 years. So um, Bart pointed out that on our tagline, it's not an exact science, that we missed a big hilarity opportunity. So yes, but you know, yeah. an hour and a half of gravity, nobody wants to hear about that. Well, and maybe sometime we'll talk about the Cavendish experiment, because I remember mm-hmm. one of my professors telling me that uh, when he was a physics major, they had to reproduce the Cavendish experiment and measure big G for one of their advanced labs. Mm-hmm. And you would have to go down into the basement where these huge masses were, set up the experiment, and wait <laughs> until the wee hours of the morning when there were no cars for a several-mile radius moving to get a stable <laughs> measurement. oh yeah that'd be even worse today too i imagine so (laughs) oh yeah absolutely i mean now i'm sure that's good enough that seismic interferes with it a lot oh yeah exactly something to keep in mind if you're uh want to really torture your students though (laughs) right but so thanks for those pieces of feedback and keep it coming we love hearing from you uh corrections comments additional links that we missed to put in the show notes it's it's great Yes, So what are we going to talk about this week? Well, you know, I was kind of saving this idea until we had a big storm, a big winter storm, and Mother Nature served it up pretty pretty nice. Um, As one of the radio personalities here in Oklahoma City said today, though, for once, there's news about the weather, and it has nothing to do with Oklahoma. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. And that's true. So today, we're going to talk about different kinds of winter precipitation. Yeah, and I know you've been wanting to do this show forever because this is one of your favorite topics. <laughs> it really, and it all boils down to this one word that I like to say, but we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> we'll get to that later. Um, so with this first winter storm of 2016 over with, I figured we'd just jump on the bandwagon and go ahead and do a show all about anything frozen that could fall from the sky. Right. And, I mean, like you said, this storm that hit the Northeast – there were places that got uh, 
what over 60 inches of snow i think uh yes that was that was the biggest one that i saw was in north carolina um over 66 inches at mount mitchell and um i've also put in a link in here there's a quite extensive wikipedia article up about it already but this storm broke all kinds of records all over the place um and we've also linked in here a really cool slate article that i just thought was funny and um, it's basically, how do you get rid of all this stuff? And the answer is pickle juice and cheese brine. <laughs> so how does pickle juice and cheese brine get rid of all this? I know snow removal is a huge issue, um, but you're going to have to explain this one. Right. And like, you know, we don't really talk about it down here. We just sand the roads after there's already a quarter inch of ice and everyone stays home for half a day and, you know, then it melts the next day. Um, but I know up north, this is a really expensive thing, you know, Um my husband's from Iowa, and so we talk about it a lot. And so what they do is that they take uh, pickle juice. I think they said New Jersey has used this before. And so the brininess of the pickle juice and also with the cheese brine, they spray this stuff down with a few chemical additives, and they spray it before the actual storms get there, and it just keeps the roads from icing over. But not just that, but, like, cheese brine. They actually do this in Wisconsin – obviously. <laughs> right. And uh, so cheese brine is this byproduct of making cheese. So the counties are getting for free cheese producers waste products, adding in a few chemicals, pretty cheap. And it says that can keep the roads ice free down to minus 23 Fahrenheit. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so in Arkansas and Missouri, I know they've been experimenting with beet juice the last few winters. So I think it's a similar mechanism. Uh, yes, yep, exactly. Um, and it actually says this started in Iowa um, and the salt brining of the roads before. So instead of, you know, treating the roads before instead of the major cost of having to get out there after everything's already happened was a big deal. And um, since the 90s, this has just taken off and saved counties hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, beet juice would be pretty funny, I think, too, because that would look like, I don't know, a big highway accident, I would imagine. <laughs> Yeah. And I'll also link in the show notes if I can find the picture again. Uh, but there was a picture from, I'm going to say the 50s in Boston, where, you know, getting actually the snow off the streets is a huge problem because you don't have anywhere else to put it towards the end of the winter. Oh, right. uh, they had this thing that was, it looked like a modified garbage truck. They called the Snowtron, uh, which <laughs> further corroborates it being the 50s. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and it was a snowblower that instead of blowing the snow, it sucked the snow in, melted it, and then put it in a tank as water in the back, and they would go drain the tank somewhere uh, uh, to actually excellent. get the snow up off the streets. So it caused, I mean, snow and winter weather causes a huge amount of travel issues every year. I always get stuck in an airport somewhere. <laughs> People always have lots of road accidents. Uh, and it can come from many different types of precipitation. Right, exactly, because while we don't really generally have, you know, massive snowstorms down here, we do have a lot of ice storms, which are a whole nother can of worms, right? Um, oh, yeah. And so it can get, if you're not a super nerd like we are, um, <laughs> and especially as sort of as the temperature is changing, you know, as you come out of fall and into winter, it's a really scary thing about, like, what kind of precip are you going to get when you get this storm in and... How are you going to deal with it? How are you going to plan your day and everything around it? You know, are your kid's going to get out of school. What's it going to look like in the afternoon and stuff like that. Um, and so I just thought we could talk sort of about how do you know what you're going to get? What can you do? 
Um, and just some interesting facts about frozen presup because you're right. I do love it. It's one yeah, of my favorite things. <laughs> predicting what kind of precipitation is absolutely maddening because it's a couple degree razor thin margin that you need to know the temperature profile to, to mm. a pretty decent altitude to get an idea of whether it's going to be snow, freezing rain, rain, sleet, all these other things. Oh, right. Exactly. And so th- that's exactly it. And um, it's kind of cool to think about some of your drone experiments that you've done, sort of just putting a thermometer on the drone. And I think you could get maybe some really accurate stuff if you could fly your drone high enough. Um, <laughs> but just like Yeah, said, FAA says 400 feet, so. <laughs> okay, well, that's not going to do it. Um, <laughs> maybe some surreptitious uh no um anyway we'll just we'll just depend on the weather service and weather balloons <laughs> because what we need right. to know in order to predict this stuff is the temperature of the air above whatever location you're forecasting for where you're at because that makes all the difference and just like john said it's like a degree that's going to make the difference between these different types but you know if we're talking about rain that's pretty easy right yeah so it's just basically think of a linear temperature profile going from somewhere way below zero, uh, minus 20 C, somewhere in there, uh, up where the cloud is. And it gets snow. The snow melts pretty high and is rain by the time it hits the ground where it's plus 20 C or close to 70 Fahrenheit. Uh, so right. that's the simple, simple case that we're all used to and hope that we get generally. Right, exactly. And in terms of forecasting, the snow case is actually pretty simple too. Not where it is or how much, but whether or not it's going to be snow. And that's, is it freezing at the surface and freezing all the way up? There you go. You just got snow. Also pretty easy. Right. And you said that uh, amounts were tricky. And that's really because the density of the snow can vary widely. Everybody's seen very fluffy snow, very compact snow. If you shoveled them, you know the difference. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and it's actually a really important thing is what is the liquid water equivalent of the snow that you got? Uh, one way to do that, kind of the standard way, is you go out and you take a core, just like you would have rock, with mm-hmm. a pipe of snow and come in and melt it and weigh it. Right, exactly. Um, there's a fun paper down the road that has to do with that because I know some states... Utah, I'm talking to you, um, talks about how fluffy their <laughs> snow is, and that has to do with the difference in the water content. And um, there's been a lot of experiments done about these claims and, like, what's the best to ski in. And so it's kind of it's kind of cool, but we all have a fun paper sometime down the oh. road about that as well. Oh, yeah, and after the snow falls, it settles. It compacts under its own weight. Uh, and there's a lot of argument. In fact, some people say, we broke the snowfall record at Site X, and there's a ton of argument over whether they measured it at the right time. Do you uh-huh. go out and measure it at random times? Do you mm-hmm. measure it as soon as it stops snowing? Does it compact? Mm-hmm. Does it not compact? It can get really, really ugly. Oh, yes. Um, and I know that sort of falls in both of our wheelhouses talking about measuring precipitation. Um, but we're going to leave that alone and just go on with what kind of precipitation. <laughs> so we've got... Okay, yeah. Yeah, pull me back. <laughs> exactly. I know, I know you love that stuff. So we've got rain. we got snow. Those are easy. So what's the other stuff that's out there? Um, sleet. Sleet's where your temperature profile isn't as straightforward because up in the tops of the atmosphere, like where the cloud is, you know, you're at negative 20, negative 10 degrees Celsius, and your precip starts to fall as snow. Then as you come down in the atmosphere, you warm up. You warm up past zero Celsius. Your snow melts, turns into rain. 
Then, to complicate it, your air at the ground and close to ground level, now that's important, not just at the ground, but close to ground level, is also below freezing, just like your air above. So your rain freezes again, and now you've got sleet. And sleet's this weird thing. Um, I went to actually look it up, and it doesn't quite have a very good definition, and that kind of surprised me. Yeah, I mean, what you call, is it sleet? Is it small hail? I... I don't really know. Right. Uh. And exactly, pellets, like, and one thing I found yeah. online, which I thought was funny, and it's one of those cautions of not just believing what you find online, was that it says, if it bounces, it's sleet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But actually, I, mean, I, the... I guess we can differentiate it from hail truly because it's not this thing that freezes aloft in the cloud as it's held up by updrafts and all that. Right. Exactly. So it is different from hail pretty easily but the actual like my american meteorological society glossary of meteorology says officially the british definition but colloquially in the u.s is sleet is a mixture of snow and rain <laughs> hmm. okay yeah thanks <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's <laughs> i mean we thought geology is not exact science but i mean <laughs> meteorology is usually very precise and so i thought sleet's definition was pretty funny but the point is you've got cold air aloft, cold air above and at the surface, but it falls through a warm layer that turns the precipitation back into rain. And then it's this weird mix of both rain and snow when it hits the ground. And the warm layer has to be a decent uh, amount aloft. So it has time to freeze again as it's falling. And it, you have to be pretty cold at the surface for this to happen, right? Uh, right, exactly. Otherwise, you're going to get freezing rain. Which is what always happened in Oklahoma when always. I was there. Always. God, always. <laughs> <laughs> and it's awful because our poor trees, like, if they don't get hit by tornadoes, they get hit by ice storm. And you just, all over the state, there's all these poor broken trees. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's the ice storm of 03 or, <laughs> mm-hmm. or it's that one tornado. Um, so it's awful because freezing rain is where you have, you know, it might have fallen as snow up in the upper atmospheres. And then it's basically a warm column, but right at the surface, you're at or below freezing. And so this rain is sort of nearly a super cold liquid as it's falling through, but not cold enough to turn into snow again. It hits something that's already below freezing because right at the surface, you're freezing or below, and then it just turns into ice. And everything breaks loose after that. (laughs) This is your bridges and overpasses maybe slick scenario. Uh, right, exactly. Because <laughs> um, exactly. you don't have that insulation like you would at the ground, basically underneath a bridge or an overpass. And so you get that. And if it's, you know, if it's more widespread and it can turn awful because you get this ice deposited on power lines, on trees, and if you get enough of it, it just is sort of a runaway effect. And you can have all kinds of power outages. And obviously ice is impossible to travel in, so... Yeah, that's oh, never yeah. a fun, uh, never a fun week. But but then you also can get things like a fog that freezes on the cold surfaces, right? Um, and that can catch you by surprise early in the morning. Oh yes, we just had this happen last week. Actually, um, we didn't get any snowfall, but we had freezing fog, and it's weird. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's not what you expect. And it really hurts if you have to walk through freezing fog because you inhale that stuff. That is, that's cold. 
Um, so it's basically, yeah, it's basically the same conditions, um, as you would get with freezing rain, but obviously you're just create you just have fog and mist and not a rain scenario. Um, but it's the same sort of bridges and overpasses icing, which is a terrible occurrence. Right. But fog is not the same thing as the next item that you had on our list. Right. Or freezing fog is not. Right. Um, so freezing fog and mist, not the same thing as frost. And I don't want to go a lot into frost because it's not really precipitation and that's what we're talking about. But frost is really cool. <laughs> um, right. We've got this awesome link to this website that has some weird stuff that I've never seen in nature. I don't know if you got to look at all these pictures, but frost flowers? Yeah, I mean. so there was actually, in the back of Physics Today, a little while back, there was a frost picture. Uh, and it does some really crazy things. And you can tell all kinds of things about wind direction from how it grew. And uh, mm -hmm. it's pretty wild. I think we might have to do a show on it at some point. Oh, I think so, too. Um, because, well, I mean, it's got all kinds of, like, agricultural and um, transportation issues can be associated with frost as well and we've all heard about like hoarfrost that's sort of a common term uh you can get white and black frost uh just rime in general which to me is a word that's used a lot and a rime is just sort of a layer but these frost flowers that are on this website are super cool <laughs> like they they look like flowers and these things are just like long icicles of frost essentially that grow in these cool budding looking shapes like all over trees and leaves and stuff and it's really neat so you could check out those frost pictures and i'm sure we could talk a lot about it at a later date <laughs> yeah well so then we're actually going to talk about some of the convective stuff that i set up as a, a little bit of a straw man earlier right so <laughs> yeah <laughs> hail Hail is every storm chaser's nightmare, but it is frozen precipitation. <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, when I worked at the Severe Storms Laboratory, I always had to drive the hail car because the first time I ever went storm chasing <laughs> with this, like, thousands and thousands of dollars on top of my car, I basically drove home from the Texas Panhandle without a windshield. <laughs> right. <laughs> because we got some big hail. I mean, that was the objective, um, but... So it became this big joke that I always had to do the hail car because I was good at attracting it. Um, and since I said storm chasing, you should gather that hail isn't really a wintertime thing. Actually, the growth of hail within convective precip is generally inhibited in winter. Right. So here we're talking about, now granted, hail growth is a whole nother show, but we're not talking about <laughs> hail cycling up and down. That's not what happens. That's a lie that you were told by your textbooks. But <laughs> but hail does need a convective storm with a strong updraft to grow. And it can grow uh, in these different density layers and have some really fascinating uh, cloud physics going on. Uh, right, exactly. And if you've ever, you know, gone out after a hailstorm and, like, cut open um, pieces of hail, you can see these, like, accretionary rings. Um, but hail's different from other frozen precip. Because, like, with sleet, for example, sleet is frozen snow, or snow that has melted, right, and then been refrozen near the ground level. Um, but hail forms from this water ice way up in 
a thunderstorm. Um, you can generally see those layers, and you're not really going to see that so much in sleet. And obviously, sleet's usually quite a bit smaller than hail. Right, and I will link in a blog post that I did. Uh, just pulled it up back in 2010 that is creatively called Highway to Hail. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> I've, I've been refraining from using the words hail, yeah. So I'm just, I just yeah. want to get that out there. <laughs> uh, it, we had a hailstorm come through where I lived at the time. And I did this. I went out and got a bunch of uh, little different uh, hailstones, showed the fast and slow growth layers, talked about the cloud physics of that a little bit. Uh, so I'll link that in if you want to see what we're talking about, if you never have seen these interesting layered hail structures before. Oh, yeah. We've seen to We've gotten some really cool ones um, in the last couple of years. And I say really cool, but unfortunately, it's caused my homeowner's insurance to grow up or to go up because I have adult problems like that. And that sucks. But... <laughs> At least right. it's been pretty to look at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but then you can get to hail that's maybe not as damaging. And I'm not going to say it because this is your favorite meteorological word. <laughs> Man, it is. I love it so much. So, and that word is something that is often called soft hail or tapioca snow, which was super cool. And, of course, we're talking about grapple. Yes. So... <laughs> <laughs> grapple are these little bitty hail-like things so you know they're a few millimeters in diameter tops otherwise they right. are actual hailstones right exactly uh-huh. and um i i love tapioca snow <laughs> super great um yeah. so <laughs> i always i know it grappled on us i like to use it as a verb because it's even funnier to me um many times <laughs> at uh field camp we'd go up to pike's peak and we'd start to get precipitation, and oftentimes it was this grapple stuff. And this is actually also in the glossary of meteorology. It says that it does rebound when it falls on a hard surface. Um, but these little soft hails or tapioca snows are these aggregates, basically, and you can crush them like styrofoam. So that's sort of how you know you've got grapple is that you could get one and just squish it together. And it's often called like granular snow or snow granules. Um, And it happens when the surface temp is at or slightly below freezing. Yeah. And I mean, these are super low density. Once you've seen it, you'll know what it is. Oh, yeah. They don't hurt when they hit you at all. Um, No. (laughs) I guess that's that's a good way to tell them apart from sleet because sleet does feel like little hailstones sometimes. Um, Yeah, but... I just love grapple. It's really interesting looking. Now that I know it's called tapioca snow, I like it even more. (laughs) (laughs) I might even like that more than the word grapple. (laughs) I I am sure you're going to use it the first chance you get and have people look at you in a strange manner. Absolutely. I'm tweeting it out the first time it happens here. Um, We haven't had any in quite some time, actually, Um, because obviously I like to lecture about what grapple is. Um, (laughs) all the time Uh, obviously (laughs) um it's also called uh the solid equivalent of drizzle oh that was funny too Mm, okay yeah yep i can see that (laughs) but i could go on and on about grapple but that's not really the most ubiquitous type of wintertime precipitation which is of course (laughs) yeah it's snow yeah i mean (laughs) We we mentioned that earlier and said that it's where you're below freezing for the entire atmospheric profile. Uh, surface up, you just get freezing precipitation that starts falling, stays frozen 
all the way down. And you can get all these different textures. And I think uh, you talk about this some in your uh, Native American Connections class, right? Uh, right. Um, so there's sort of this myth and lots of people per- perpetuate it that, you know, Inuits have, you know, 200 words for snow. Um, and so while that's sort of true, um, there's actually been a lot of etymolo- et- etymological, it's hard for me to say non-geology words, um, <laughs> studies about, you know, is that really true or is that just some guy saying that when he talked to an Inuit for the first time? But I've included a link here and um, to an Inupiat dictionary. And this book is actually really cool. It's a scanned uh, PDF of this Inupiat dictionary. And so these, of course, are um, a tribe that's as far north as you can go, basically. And they have a whole chapter on weather and the Inupiat words for weather. And it is true. There are a lot of words <laughs> for different kinds of snow. Yeah, I mean, there's um, glazed snow in thaw time, snowdrift that's blocking a trail, um, <laughs> yes. snowbank, snowdrift overhang ready to fall. I mean, there's a lot of very descriptive words, and I cannot pronounce a single one. Oh, no, no. And there's not, <laughs> there's actually not a guide for pronouncing any of them. <laughs> so that's going to be a different class, and we're not even going to try any because we wouldn't want to do that. But um, uh, it's no. really cool. It has, you know, ice that's frozen ice that's in the process of breaking up or also i mean it's almost a season the ice breakup time i thought that was kind of cool too and i bet you know with climate change that is so accelerated in the arctic i bet the ice breakup time has changed significantly from long ago when this book was written yeah and i i do like that they have a word that i mean this is showing where you make a word for something that's important to you ice thick enough to walk on (laughs) <laughs> yes. There's a specific word for that, uh, which makes sense. You don't really care what the thickness is, but you do care if you can walk on it. Uh, yes, ex- yes, exactly. Um, ice-covered boats. Um, it's a really cool – it's just cool to look at to um, see. And there's actually quite a few really awesome illustrations throughout the rest of this book if you are interested in that. Um, but, I mean, it is – it's five, six, eight pages of winter weather-related words. So there are a lot of words – um, for the different kinds of precipitation and the conditions that they create. And it's kind of neat. Yeah. So another myth about snow that we've all heard is that no two snowflakes are alike. In fact, we like to say that, you know, you're your own special little snowflake when we're being sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, okay, I was going to say, that is clearly always used in mocking. Um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, you can you can make snowflakes that are identical. This is sort of really right. sad for me to find out. <laughs> I mean, how and could you ever actually know if it's happened in the wild? That isn't really known, but right. But the conditions that they are made in in the laboratory are, I mean, they're real snow. It's just not from a cloud, but it happened the same way it does in nature. So theoretically. <laughs> So theoretically, I say yes. in air quotes, as so and often. You, and you certainly have a large N. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you're not a special snowflake after all. Um, but they have some cool pictures of these special little snowflakes. Um, and we say snowflakes, but that's wrong, too. They're actually snow crystals. 
Yes, because <laughs> they do have a fixed crystal structure because ice is a mineral. Uh, I figured you would appreciate that. Um, exactly. Uh, yes. <laughs> so those cute. How many times hex- is that? Three shows we've kept that going now. I know. <laughs> I feel it. Uh, I feel we're gonna keep that. Keep that up. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so these little singular things that we look at, these hexagonal beautiful things, they don't actually happen very often, and we call them snowflakes, but those are snow crystals. And by definition, a snowflake is an amalgam of snow crystals. So, you know, like a rock versus a mineral. Um, yeah, except exactly. It's, except it's all the same composition, but we won't go there. This metaphor is very shallow. Right. And it's really interesting. I mean, you think about how do you take a picture of a single snow crystal? Um, I have a lot of without it melting, without disturbing it. It's It's, tough. Yeah, um, it is really tough. And you see them, you know, I feel like we see them a lot. I tried to get my kid to go outside and look at them. And every time he would touch them, of course, they'd melt. So um, he didn't really get what that science experiment was about. (laughs) (laughs) it's just not cold enough here for them to hang around um but i've seen some of my friends like snow crystal photography and it's super awesome so you have to appreciate that um and when you look at these pictures you know appreciate what goes into catching those um but so these snowflakes more commonly what we say are these snow crystals glued together or pieces of these crystals um and I think it's really cool because one of the first things we talked about in meteorology was that rain raindrops don't look like that thing that you draw from when you were a child, right? The teardrop shape, yeah. Yeah, they're not that. They're little pancakes, right? Which is not as cool looking. Um, right. But so most snowflakes are actually little cones. I thought that was cool too. So they amalgamate into these little cones with their point falling downward, as you can imagine. And uh, they can get pretty big. Oh, which yeah. I- I didn't realize. Um, it said many snowflakes are commonly, commonly, in calm conditions. You can commonly get, you know, two, three inches across. Um, but the biggest snowflake recorded was 10 inches in diameter. Oh, wow. <laughs> Could you imagine that thing coming down? That's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. It's like a paper plate that, flying out of the sky at you. <laughs> that is. <laughs> um I mean, there's so the, a lot of really neat information on the snowcrystals.com website. Oh, oh, I spent at least an hour, at least, to write that one paragraph that I just read. And, you know, <laughs> I do think it's interesting that the professor, it's a professor of physics that runs this site and studies uh, crystal growth, is at Caltech. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why he stays in the lab, you know? Right. <laughs> no natural laboratory for what he does there. Uh, but yeah, so that was uh, that was super interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, he's got a cool link to some cool books too, as well. And obviously, there's a ton of pictures. So this is a really link heavy show because I get really excited about all this stuff. But I guess if you're gonna choose one, you should probably choose this one. It's pretty neat. Yeah. Um, well, and then you can get snow doing all kinds of interesting things after it falls, uh, like forming snow rollers. Did you know what this was before you read these notes? Yes. Oh, <laughs> just because you're at Penn State. See, we used to make fun of Penn State meteorologists because we said, you know, you can chase tornadoes at OU and you can shovel snow at Penn State. You decide. Right. So is, is this so where I've, you learned I've about I've never them? seen one in the wild. Oh. I will say that. 
<laughs> so I had to look this up. I had never seen this because I'm from the flatlands. Um, but a snow roller is just this. It's a rolled up cylindrical mass of snow, rather common in mountainous or hilly regions. Um, and so it's when your snow is moist enough to stick together. So I imagine, you know, really good snowball snow, right? And Exactly. It's picked up by the wind, blown down a slope, and basically like a cartoon, right? It just keeps rolling down the slope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so these things vary in size from like tiny little cylinders. And it says some are over two meters long and over two meters in circumference. That's awesome. Yeah. So if you are from an area where you've seen uh, those round hay bales sitting in the fields <laughs> yeah. where you can tell how the baler rolled the hay up, this looks exactly like that. Oh, that's exactly what I pictured. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I thought that was really cool. I think that would be fun to see in the wild. Um, another weird one was Snow Garland, which I guess you could really imagine, but I never really knew it had a name. Um, but this says, um, this is a beautifully written glossary <laughs> thing too. A rare and beautiful phenomenon in which snow is festooned from trees, fences, etc., in the form of a rope of snow, several feet long and several inches in diameter. And it's formed and sustained by surface tension, acting in thin films of water that bond the individual crystals together. And so this also Hmm. has a really specific um, surface condition. So these garlands only form when the surface temperature is close to the melting point, because then you can only get that super cold water that holds it together, uh, holds the crystals together. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. Well, and, you know, another thing that happens, and I think most people that have experienced snow have experienced this, where the snow gets packed down and gets this nice frozen layer on top, and you can walk on top of it without even falling through, without snowshoes. Until you get to that one special spot, and then... Yeah. <laughs> then you go in. But I, 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 I did not know that that was formally called snow concrete but apparently Uh, it is right so i think this probably is very geological in nature because we have a lot of like desert pavement and surfaces like this that sort of bring to mind what snow concrete would look like and actually the last time we had snow here um they had they were sending their poor weather people out to jump up and down on these like five foot tall drifts because it was this <laughs> massive layer of snow concrete, and you could tell they just wanted him to fall in on camera, but it never happened because it was pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I guess that's another thing that happens with snow is it does drift, and you get areas that are locally just much, much deeper than anything oh, else. Yeah, and I will say, like, snow fences, those things always sort of boggle my mind. Um, just the way that they work, number one. And, you know, you see these things in the summer and they just look funny. Um, But the cool sort of drifts that will form, like, around them or interact, you know, between different fences, I always think that's really neat to to see is the shapes that these drifts will make around um, these objects. So that's kind of cool, too. Those are also known as wild fences, (laughs) which I thought was hilarious. All right. (laughs) Okay. So... There's another aspect of snow that we're not going to talk about because we've already been running really long uh, <laughs> on all the shows this month, and there's five weeks in January, so that uh, makes our, our upload space a little short. But we could talk a lot about avalanches and snow stability. We've talked about it a little bit in the past, and I think we'll probably talk about it again, hopefully with some people that actually do this for a living. 
Uh, yes, that'd be much more interesting than listening to us talk about it some more. Um, but I wanted to mention one last thing when it comes to sort of winter weather, because, you know, we talk about the weather service a whole lot on here. I think we're both, you know, pretty big fans of the public service that they do and their science. Um, and so we put a link in here to a lot of different um, weather service winter precip warnings so you can understand the difference. And, you know, I know for a long time I didn't know the difference between, like, what's just a really heavy snow and what's a blizzard and you know a blizzard's where it gets really bad but there's actually some very specific things that say you know these are blizzard conditions oh yeah yeah exactly so you have to have a lot of wind to really kick up the snow and get uh, reduced visibility conditions which is a hazard for driving walking flying pretty much anything outside Right, and it's it, the visibility conditions um, are basically how you define a lot of these things, like snowstorm or blowing snow or actually the difference between light, moderate, and heavy all have to do with visibility. Um, so this blizzard is sustained or frequent gusts over 35 miles per hour. So you've got to have falling or at least blowing snow because there's 35-mile-per-hour winds. Um, that reduces your visibility to less than a quarter mile for three-plus hours. So... When you've got a blizzard warning, that's what you have to look forward to. So don't travel. And lots of time sitting on the tarmac. <laughs> You're going to be <laughs> on the tarmac anyway, John. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah, no, in a, in a few weeks, in about four weeks or so, I have some travel coming up. I'm rather nervous. As you should be. Mm -hmm. Your history suggests this will not go well, but right. I digress. <laughs> So do you have anything else that you wanted to uh, hit before we wrap up the different kinds of winter precipitation? I mean, unless you want to talk about tapioca snow anymore, I think I can go ahead and shut it down. <laughs> All right. Well, that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay. Um, and this will be good for us. This was a hilarious little paper. Um, this is a great find. And this is not the first from this group. This is a recent paper, 2016. They also have one back in 2010 that's cited, and maybe we'll use it for another fun paper Friday. But I wanted to use this one because it just came out in Seismological Research Letters, and it is called Analysis of a Burglargram. <laughs> not a burglargram, a burglargram. And it's exactly what, you, what it sounds like, right? It, it is the seismological station where they have uh, instruments, they calibrate, test, and manage a local network in Germany was broken into. And they have a wonderful record of where the thief went and how long he was there, et cetera, just from the seismic signature that he left. And they're very careful to point out that they did not catch the thief. They do not know the thief's gender, yeah. but statistically only 14% of burglary suspects in Germany are female. Uh, that was the first thing I highlighted. I, it was, I mean, the paper is awesome anyway, but the fact that they have, <laughs> they have a link to criminal statistics and they've cited it <laughs> and therefore they say that's why we're moving forward saying he for the rest of this paper. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but it's just what it sounds like, right? Um, so they couldn't say who it was or anything, but what they could give the police was the exact times and locations of where the burglar was in this little, this station is actually in, um, like, not an abandoned, but what used to be a house. So as the burglar walked around, they knew exactly where he was and for how long because of all their instrumentation. 
Yeah, it was actually the professor that started this network. It was his house until he became emeritus and moved out. Yeah. <laughs> and um, donated the house. Uh, it's it's a really interesting little article. I There's a little bit of overkill in terms of doing the LiDAR scan of the inside. Oh, that's just for fun. You know you would have done it too. <laughs> if I had the capability, sure. Ex- yeah, exactly. I think you can see coffee on the desk in that LiDAR scan too. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, what i had hoped came out of this paper because it's very detailed about where the burglar was and they said that the burglar actually didn't take any of the seismic equipment um they just had a little coin box and he had left all the cents and just stolen the euros from which beggars can't be choosers right (laughs) yeah and it's one of those things where if if the person had known the value of the equipment around them (laughs) Uh, it's i mean there were several seismometers in there uh several very decent ones that are incredibly expensive but it's also a small community that buys seismometers so you can't exactly turn around and sell it i think you would know where it came from um so what i took from this was like i felt really weird it was like the most intense crime novel ever because it's super detailed about where the burglar was standing how long they stood there like how long it took him to pick out the euros from the box. And I hope this made news in Germany and that this perpetrator was so freaked out by the science equipment recording his every move that he decided that he would never <laughs> do it again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they can tell uh, when the burglar arrives, goes to the office, goes back to the desk to try to find the uh, the coin box, moves around on the first floors, going up and down stairs, mm-hmm. all from tilts on the floor. Yeah, yeah, it's super cool. Well, and it just so happens that they had a station that had had some issues that they were testing set up directly by the door he entered through. Right, right, exactly. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he displaced the floor by about two millimeters. <laughs> so I guess they could actually give some uh, indication, too, for his size, probably, based on that floor displacement. Yeah, if, if you could get a good guess at where he stepped in the building, uh, you yeah, could pretty easily true. calibrate that to weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so this was a uh, a novel use of data, yes. which I'm always a fan of. Yes, and um, <laughs> it was a super easy read too. So even if you're not a seismologist, I found it highly entertaining in terms of the writing and the actual scientific value. It's kind of cool. Yeah, and uh, they did point out that this helped convince the university to buy a security <laughs> system. Finally. <laughs> Exactly, which is probably the best outcome of everything. It is. And, I mean, we're always nervous about this. We talked uh, on last week's show about we leave all this expensive equipment outside and we're worried that we'll ever see it again. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you think about a geophysical research station like this, there's no telling how many hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment is sitting in there ready to be used outside that is ripe for being stolen. Uh, that is that is very true. But like you said, if anyone's thinking about that, it's a small market, and we'll know who you are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If if you try to sell a you know slightly used seismometer, <laughs> chances are we're gonna know exactly where it came from. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially with all this ambient seismic that's being done, right? So those things are on twenty four seven now. Oh yeah, and you know this brings up an interesting uh, privacy issue actually, that I was thinking about. You know, we've talked about what if in areas that had a lot of earthquakes, we could put a strong motion seismometer in every home 
say, uh, <laughs> California or Alaska. They just had an earthquake this week, a 7-1. Yeah. Um, that's a privacy issue because you can tell exactly when somebody's home when they did their laundry. Yeah. All of these things. Uh, All these things that happen in the privacy of your home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if you had a burglar that also happened to know how to get real-time seismological data, they could tell when you left. Uh, I think you're, you're going to be getting a call from the police sometime soon. <laughs> yeah. Thinking so like it's, that. Uh, it was a neat way to provide a little bit of light on a privacy issue that had kind of crossed my mind before, and I discussed yeah, this with a few of my colleagues. Yeah, that is actually pretty interesting. Hmm. Yeah. And also, though, if you had one of these, if you had a seismometer in your house, uh, maybe you could find out some interesting things about your patterns of life or use some clever algorithmic uh, work and connect it up to your Nest thermostat so your thermostat knows when you're there and when you're not. (laughs) That kind of thing. (laughs) Or how many times you go to the refrigerator after 10 p.m., something like that. Yeah, that's what. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. So no, this was a this was a fun read, and I do encourage you if you can't wait until we probably do this as a later fun paper. I think I said 2010. It's Hinton 2012. Uh, they do a very similar analysis on a lightning strike that was nearby. Oh, awesome! That's awesome. Yeah. So that is your fun paper Friday. If you have a suggestion for a fun paper that you would like us to talk about, uh, you should send that in to us along with any other comments, questions, corrections for the show. Uh, Shannon, how would they do that? Well, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Obviously, we'll read your emails because we've been doing that from the two people, not our parents, who have sent us them lately. Right. Um, and then you can always get a hold of us on Twitter. We're at Don't Panic Geo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.